And I want to talk to you today about something serious. Um, and so we're just going to wade into it. Um, ironically, this month, uh, 13 years ago, uh, Jenny and I were waiting for news. Uh, we were waiting to hear back. I had applied to a couple of doctoral programs, and I had finished two graduate degrees. Those of you that have been around generations know this story. Um, all along through the first and second graduate degrees, I had had profs saying, you need to go on, you need to go on, you should get a, you should get a PhD. We need people like you in the academy. You, you should do this, Max. And so they kept pushing and prodding. And so I had applied, and uh, Jenny and I were expecting our first John Mark, we, John Mark was on the way, and uh, she was six months pregnant. And on this particular February day, we had an unscheduled sonogram. Uh, and so I picked Jenny up uh, to go to the sonogram and, and stopped by the house to get the mail. And there in the mail were the two letters from the two schools. And we had our whole life mapped out. I mean, when we, we were going to move, and it was either going to be we would be living in Indiana or North Carolina, and my graduate stipend would be enough so that Jenny could stay home. We'd live in married student housing. We'd have our second kid prior to leaving. And then, boom, you know, life would be grand. And that was our plan. We had it all mapped out. And I opened the first letter, and it was a no. So, no problem. Obviously, we're not going to North Carolina. We're going to Indiana. That's where we're going to live. And I opened that letter, and sure enough, guess what it was? No. And all of a sudden, in that moment, Everything that we had mapped out, everything that we were planning on, everything that we were expecting to be for our lives wasn't going to turn out the way we had expected. And I spent the next year um, with two graduate degrees cleaning toilets, trying to figure out what God was up to in my life. Um, What do you do when things don't turn out the way you think they're going to turn out? How do do you handle that? What do you do with that? we went to school with a good set of friends, and they graduated about the same time that we did. We were in Wind Ensemble. They were in Wind Ensemble. And we kind of, uh, I met Jenny the same time he met Jan. And uh, uh, we were Wind Ensemble couples. And Wind Ensemble couples, you know, the marriages may be rocky at times, but they last. That's one of the great things about the Wheaton Wind Ensemble, you know, 100% success rate in terms of marriage. Okay? And uh, uh, the, one, the, the one thing about Jan's parents, though, it was a consistent thing. Uh, when they met, you know what, honey, he's not good enough for you. You know what, honey, no offense, he's a nerd. The guy's a nerd. He's not going to amount to anything. You shouldn't marry him. You shouldn't marry him. Well, they got married. And then after marriage, it was the constant droning on month holidays. You know, this is a huge mistake, honey. You should have never. You should have never. And I don't know if that had an effect or not, but two years ago in the Christmas card, there it was. And they're divorced and they live in separate states. And the picture of, of him with the two kids is just heart-wrenching to look at, just the expression on his face, okay? Not, not what he expected, not what he signed up for, not what they had planned. It's not any of the plans that I remember talking about them when we were all young and, and life was in front of us. So what do you do when life throws you a series of, of curveballs? What do you do when things don't turn out the way that you had expected them to turn out? Um, maybe it's a relationship. What do you do when you've been with somebody and you've put in all the hard work and maybe you've got five years under your belt or 10 years under your belt and you hit this moment where you realize this relationship isn't going to work? How do you, how do you handle that? Um, how do you handle it, you know, for those of you uh, that are younger and maybe it's an injury, you run track, you run track, you run track and, and the drive away from the doctor's office, the doctor's thing is, you know what? You're not going to be able to do this anymore. You, you can't run track. This injury is too, too serious. You're never going to run again. 
And you were banking on those scholarships to pay for college, and now you don't have a college plan. I mean, there was no plan B. And if you're here today and you're 16 or 18 or 20 years old, I want you to pay careful attention because life will throw you curveballs. I understand that you've got life in front of you and your future is in front of you, and there's so little that you have behind your back that all you have to do is look forward to what's coming. But the thing is, things don't always turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. And how you handle that is really, really important. Um, What do you do when your uh, son or your daughter decides they're not going to take over the family business? You know, the one that you got from mom and dad and and you've been working and it's been a 40-year, 50-year family business. And it's clear and obvious they're not going to do it. I mean, I had a a cousin in Lancaster and they had the family farm. This was the family farm. Two of the three boys went on to become college professors. The other, I can't remember, the other guy's a youth pastor. None of them. Two, three years ago, guess what they did? They sold the family farm. There was nobody left to farm it. What do you do? What do you do when the daughter that you've raised, because she makes a bunch of choices in her life and she, she decides to go left instead of right, this wedding that you were expecting, you know, where all the family and friends, I mean, you've had the little things in your mind about this, your daughter's wedding day. And then what do you do when it becomes clear and obvious that day's not going to happen? that life circumstances in the past she's choosing is going to be something totally different. What do you do with that? What do you do with these curveballs? And that's what I want to wade into today. And I want to fess up to say this is actually, this idea, this isn't my idea. This is a message I heard 10 plus years ago uh, given by uh, a pastor in, in, um, where is he, Atlanta. His name's Andy Stanley. He's got a famous father. Okay, so if you get mad today because of the message, it's not even my fault. It's Andy's fault, and it's not even really his fault. It's the Bible's fault because that's where it comes from. So uh, I want to peer into the life of David today because David, on an afternoon when he's leaving Jerusalem, all of a sudden is faced with a future that is not what he had planned. I mean, literally, he's got the pieces of his life You know, he's holding the pieces of his life, and he does something in that moment that I think is helpful for you and me. And I want to wade into that. And and the bonus here is that it's the same Bible story that they're doing in G-Town today. It's the same Bible story we're going to hit in Kid Stuff, only you're getting the rated R version today, okay? They're going to get the PG version later on. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to the book of 2 Samuel. It's a text we've been in before, but... Uh, again, it's the kid stuff in G-Town bottom line today. And, and I need to give you a little bit of history before we get into 2 Samuel chapter 15. That's where we're going to start. But I need to give you, I need to, let me summarize. I need to give you about 11 years of history in a short period of time. This has to do with David, King David. David's a king by now. He has a bunch of sons and daughters. He's got a big family. He's got a lot of wives. And 11 years prior to this chapter, uh, his oldest son, Amnon, saw one of his daughters, uh, Tamar. And Amnon, Amnon was the firstborn, and he was the, the, the crown prince, so to speak. He was heir to the throne. He was the number one son. When David died, Amnon was going to become king. That's how it worked then. That's how it works today. And so Amnon was in line for the throne. But he saw his stepsister, Tamar, and apparently, from what we read in the text, he wanted her bad. And he developed, with, with a friend of his, he developed this scheme where uh, he pretended to be really, really sick. 
And so he sent word to his dad saying, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm just waylaid. I'm in bed. I'm bedridden. I'm really, really sick. I'm really, really weak. Would you send, Tamar's got this amazing soup recipe. Would you have her come make that for me? Oh, no problem. No problem, son. And so off he dispatches for Tamar who comes and prepares this uh, food, this soup or whatever it is. And, and Amnon orders all of his servants out of the room. And he says to her, I, you know, I can't get out of bed. Would you bring it to me? So there she gets to his bedside and he grabs her and rapes her, his stepsister. And apparently, according to the text, she's not strong enough to fight him off. Okay? So now she's disgraced. And, and the Bible says that as soon as he was done raping her, the love that he thought he had turned to hatred. In other words, he never really loved her in the first place. All he wanted to do was to have her. And once he had her, he was done. Uh, Lose-lose story right there, isn't it? It's a loss for him. It's a loss for her. Now she can't get married. She has no future. Well, her older brother, Absalom, was infuriated. He was angry. But, you know, you can't rape the king's daughter. You can, even if you're the king's son, you can't get away with that. Word gets to David. He's infuriated too. But you know what? David does nothing. We've talked about that. In, in this church family. And if you're here today, if you hear nothing else, then maybe you should pay attention to this. When there's big stuff going on in your family and you ignore it, there's always what Ron Paul calls blowback. Not dealing with things in your family system will have blowback, and it can be deadly. And David does nothing. Well, two years later, uh, Absalom has been biding his time, biding his time, seething under the surface and he develops a scheme of his own. And you know what he decides to do? Uh, it's sheep shearing time, kind of like Thanksgiving, Christmas here in America. It's a time where lots of people have dinner parties. There's lots of big generosity, big parties, lots of food. Oh, I ate too much. Sheep shearing time is that kind of a thing back then. And so uh, Absalom tells his dad, David the king, I, I want to have the whole family over at my place. This has been an amazing, I've had a great year. This has been, I've just, I've got way too much food. I don't even know what to do with it. I want to throw a party for everybody. Have everybody come. David's like, no, 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 come on. I'm the king. It's a big deal. I, I, I couldn't burden you, but, you know, sure, if you want to invite the rest of the family, go right ahead. And so he does. And, of course, who's there too? Amnon. And he's been plotting and planning this, and he has his servants, his hired hands in place, and right there at dinner that night, they pounce on Amnon and kill him. In front of all of his brothers and sisters, he kills his brother. Well, of course, he flees immediately to a foreign city. And once again, you know, word gets to David. And once again, what does David do? Nothing. Does nothing. His third-born son has killed the oldest, the heir to the throne, and he does nothing. Well, Absalom kind of hangs out there in this foreign city. And through a set of circumstances and and a plan from an old friend... And this is now six, six years later, um, Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. David invites him back. They don't speak to each other for a couple of years. They don't even see each other face to face. And then finally they do, but it's obvious and clear that the relationship is strained. It's not, it's not going to be repaired. It's not going to be better. And that's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So a lot of good stuff up to this point, isn't it? Right? So there's the backstory, and so now here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 15, and it says this, after this, after, in other words, after all this, Absalom uh, bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 footmen to run ahead of him, 
Anytime you see this in the Old Testament, you need to think one thing. King. Chariot, horses, people running ahead. Absalom wants to be what? King. He got up early in the morning and went out to the gate of the city. And when the people brought a case to the king, King David, for judgment, Absalom would ask them where they're from. And they would tell him their tribe. And Absalom would say, man, you've got a strong case. I sure wish I could help. Looks like it's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. And again, you don't, you know, what, what do you need to hear? I wish I were what, king? You know, if I were king, gosh, we could solve this. You know, David, he's too busy, too aloof, too big, larger than life. But man, if I were the king, we, you know, we could get to the heart of the matter. We could really get to a solution. Then people could bring their problems to me, Absalom said, and I would give them justice. And when the people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Okay? Just, it's normal to bow before the prince and, oh, no, no, please, no, I insist, don't do that. Really? Yeah. And, and when people tried to bow, okay, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and embraced them. So in this way, verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. In the preceding chapter, the Bible tells us that Absalom was just like his father. He had a head full of hair. He was handsome. He was a capable military commander. Uh, in fact, I almost wonder if one of the reasons David didn't do anything is because, you know, when you have lots of, when you have kids and lots of kids, they're all different. They're all unique. And then some of them, one of them, you're like, man, you're just like your mom or you're just like your dad. Well, Absalom was just like his father. Absalom was like a little mini carbon copy of David. And maybe that's why David didn't do anything. I don't know. There are a lot of different reasons it played out. But, but Absalom was a little mini David. And so according to here, he's won over the hearts of the people. Well, Absalom has a plan, and the plan is in verse 10. So Absalom went to Hebron. But while he was there, he sent secret messengers to every part of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the trumpets, his message read, you'll know that Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. And while he was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo. Soon many others joined Absalom, and so the conspiracy gained momentum. Absalom has effectively won over the nation. Week after week, month after month, people are coming into the capital. They've got legal disputes. They've got border issues. They've got all kinds of cases. And case after case, person after person, whether it's from the tribe of Dan or Benjamin or, or, or uh, uh, gosh, can't even remember, Ephraim, okay? All these other tribes, they blow into the capital city, all right, far off places. And person by person, family by family. And then they go home and what do they say? Oh, man, I sure wish Absalom were king. You know, if Absalom were king, this would have been, you know, but I couldn't even get in to see David and and. And he has a conspiracy. So he, he, he has this plan, and he's going to become king. And he's going to take his father's throne by force. Well, word gets back to David, and that's verse 13. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell King David, All Israel, get this, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. And so what does David say? Verse 14, we must flee at once or it will be too late. David urged his men, hurry. If we get out of the city before he arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared 
from disaster. So here he is. He's having to flee his capital from his own son. And in this moment, he has several options. And guess what? None of them are good options. I can fight Absalom, right? We could turn the capital city into a bloodbath. I can resist. We can have a battle. Maybe I could win. Absalom dies. We could stay and fight. We could be the ones that get defeated. I die. Absalom wins. Maybe, maybe in a set of circumstances through, through fighting Absalom off, maybe I could capture him. But if I capture him as the king, he's committed treason. And I, as his father, am going to have to decide how he gets executed. Are any of those options good options? No. None of them are good options. And you have to read this story. You have to see this not through the eyes of a king and a prince, but through a father and a son. Because that's where the story makes sense. That's why some of these actions and choices make sense. In that moment, in that moment, everything David thought about his life was literally in pieces. I mean, he had a firstborn son, Amnon, who gets killed. His secondborn son also dies from another something else. Okay, no problem. Absalom will become king. Maybe we could have worked it out. He's like me anyway, and now Absalom has committed... All the whole nation has gone after Absalom. Nothing about David's life is going to play out the way he thought it was going to play out. And if you've been there, the temptation is to get what? To get angry, isn't it? I mean, come on. When, when, When what you've expected and what you've planned doesn't play out the way you think it is... You know, for those of us that are Jesus followers, that's the easiest thing to do, right? Because we know God's big, God's large, God should be in charge. And if, and if my dreams are literally in pieces, if all this stuff that I had thought about my life isn't going to be playing out, it's your fault, God. How come you're not doing anything? And we know who to point the finger at and who to blame. But that anger, that anger can lead down a very, very deadly path. Is it okay to get mad at God? Sure. Is it okay to stay mad at God for decades? It'll take you down a miserable path if you do. Back 13 years ago, uh, I did the very thing we all do when we find ourselves with our life in pieces. You know, when I was cleaning toilets, guess what? I looked up. It's like, okay, God got my attention. Obviously, it's not going to be plan A, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan F through K. It's not going to be anything I thought it was going to be. You have my attention. What would you like me to do? I'm just going to clean toilets until you talk to me. Well, David does something in that moment, and it's, it's found in verses 23 and following. There was a deep sadness throughout the land as the king and his followers passed by. Uh, the NIV puts it this way, the whole countryside wept, okay? So you, got, you have to imagine this scene. The king, the little kid who threw, slew Goliath, who kept the Philistines at bay, who consolidated the monarchy in Israel, who did all these great things. His son has now, uh, you know, more loved, more popular. And so for the people of the capital city, they're watching their king leave with his armed escort and members of his household. And the Bible says that David was barefoot, which was a sign of mourning. He didn't even have shoes on as he's leaving the city, okay? And people are literally, they've lined the streets and they're weeping as their king leaves. This is not going to have a happy ending, no matter how it plays out. 
Abathar and Zadok, verse 24, and the Levites took the Ark of the Covenant of God and set it down beside the road, and they offered sacrifices there until everyone had passed by. Have you ever seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark? No one's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, okay. Remember the box that when you look at it, your face melts in this really cool Steven Spielberg fashion? This is that box. This is the magic box, the box that had the stone tablets of Moses in it. This is, if you ever, if you've never read the book of Judges, you ought to read the book of Judges just to follow what happens to the box. There are some amazing, cool stories. Once the box was uh, left by this guy's property and his corn like grew 25 feet tall and he had, you know, his kid, every time his cows would have calves, they would have like five, six of them. I mean, it was, and they were like, what? Okay, and then one time the Philistines stole the box. They took the box and then they had sores and pus and all this stuff growing on them. And they're like, oh, we don't want the box. Take it back. <laughs> and then there was the people, you know, a, a guys would occasionally touch the box because you weren't supposed to move the box by touching it, you know, or carrying it on a car or something like that. And then, you know, as soon as they, they would be stricken dead. I mean, it, this was a powerful box, okay? You know, and so you gotta, gotta see this for what it is. David, they're leaving, they're leaving the capital city, they're leaving the, the palace, they're leaving everything, but dadgummit, we're taking the box, right? <laughs> we're taking the box, it's our box. We're gonna at least have the magic box. And so that's what's going on. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, and it's verse 25. David instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. Let me read that again. David instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. David said this, If the Lord sees fit, he'll bring me back to the ark of the tabernacle again. But if he's through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. I'm not going to try and manipulate God or what God wants out of this situation. Go ahead and take the ark back. I don't need the magic box. Let God do whatever he sees fit. There are some things that you and I can learn from what David does in that moment. Um, Thing number one, don't wrap your faith up with your dreams so that they're one and the same. I mean, come on. When when your dreams, when my dreams, you know, if, if Going on and getting a PhD and da-da-da-da was wrapped up in my faith. As soon as this thing didn't happen, I would toss my faith aside. Well, that didn't work. Well, obviously, I can't count on God. So it's never wise to wrap your faith up with your dreams. Because here's the second thing. What you and I expect, in other words, how we think God is going to fulfill his promises, isn't always how God decides that he's going to fulfill his promises. I mean, if think about it. If you had sat David down at any point along the way, because God had made a promise to David, David, you are a man after my own heart. I know you've done some, you know, let's not talk about Bathsheba. You know, I know there's some, I know there's some blemishes on the record, but you know what? You got a heart after me. There will always be a descendant of yours on the throne. I promise you that. That's a promise. And if you had sat David down and said, David, how do you think God's going to fulfill that promise? Oh, no problem. I had Amnon. Amnon. Got a, got a son, firstborn. He's going to be king. I'm going to train him how to be a king, teach him the ways of kingship, and he'll be king. And then, oh, oh <laughs> he's gone. Well, that's okay. I've got a number two son. Well, he's gone. Well, 
you know, Absalom was most like me anyway. And I figure, you know, God can do anything he wants. And maybe he could do it through a number three. He doesn't need a number one son. He can do it through the number three son. Well, guess what? Absalom dies later in the next chapter. So if you had sat David down and asked him how God was going to fulfill this promise, David would have given you any number of answers, but it's not how God meted out. It's not how God actually fulfilled that promise. Here's the last thing. Um, David didn't try to force God's hand. In other words, David had open hands about his, about his life and his future. Basically, when he says, and this is, this is huge, uh, let him do what seems best to him. And some of you might be tempted to go, well, Max, that's just fatalism. That's just, you know, that's just whatever. No, 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 no. That's not whatever. It's David saying, you know what? I'm not going to try and force things to come out the way I think they should come out. I'm going to have open hands about my future and open hands about what you want. You have your way. Jesus said it a different way. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. And it's hard to have open hands sometimes, isn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that we've been hoping for and expecting and hoping for for a long time. It's hard to have open hands, but it's the best way to live through something where your dreams get shattered is to have open hands, just like David. Because again, if, if, if you and I don't have open hands, if we don't respond the way David responded, we're just going to get mad. And that anger is going to fester and it's going to, it's, going to, it's going to ravage our relationship with God over the long term and it'll ravage the relationships around us. Anger always leads the same way. Unresolved anger, I'm talking about. And again, is it okay to get mad? Are we telling you you should never get mad or angry at God? No, we're not saying that. But over the long haul, when it's months and months and years and years, it'll ruin that relationship. Just like David's relationship with Absalom was ruined because of anger. Uh, I'm going to ask our musicians to come up, and uh, we're going to end today with worship. And uh, uh, what I want you to do is what I want to do in my own life, and that is when it. And I, and I know some of you got you got stuff. There's big stuff flying around. There's job things that have fallen through. I mean, you were the faithful employee, and then they brought you in the office and they said, "We're sorry, we're going to have to let you go." And you're like, "What?" And there's some of you, and some of you, and you got relationship stuff. There's big stuff. I think the wise thing to do, I think the best thing to do is to have your hands open, just like David had his hands open, and to basically say to God, okay, I don't understand everything. I don't understand how you're going to fulfill this promise. I don't know how you're going to fulfill all the things that I'm counting on you for, but you know what? I have open hands. Not my will, but your will be done. And I would encourage you to read through this story and read through what happens later. Um, David... David does some very strategic things. I mean, he sends, uh, he sends one of his people to go be a spy and to kind of thwart what Absalom is doing. It's, it's not like David does absolutely nothing, okay? David does what he can, but his, his confidence, his trust is in God. That's what I want for you, and that's what I want for me.